0: One of the lessons I've learned in martial arts is that standing still is asking to be hit. If you stand still in business, your competition is gonna catch up. I start each morning practicing martial arts because it brings me balance and focus. And I wanna know how others stay motivated as well. So join me for conversations on business, innovation, and entrepreneurship. I'm Dan Schulman. Welcome to Never Stand Still. Hi, everyone. So I'm gonna give a little bit of an introduction. Madeline Albright, but she doesn't really need much of an introduction. But I actually wrote it down personally, I, I, which you know, you know, I figured would be this personal touch on this. So. I'll give a little introduction. I'm gonna leave out a ton of stuff or else I'd have no time for questions. Um, so uh, let, me, let me give a little background. Uh, most of you know uh, Secretary Albright because she was the uh, first woman to become Secretary of State of the United States. It only took 63 men before her to become the first uh, woman to, uh, to hold that office. Um, but let me start a little bit earlier. Um, Madeline grew up in Czechoslovakia. Uh, her dad was a diplomat there. And when the Nazis occupied Czechoslovakia in 1939, her family fled to the UK. Um, and eventually they immigrated to the United States uh, through Ellis Island, uh, when, you, when we talk about the Immigration Act and all of those things that we took stands for. We wouldn't have uh, Secretary Albright here if uh, there were some uh, restrictions uh, on that. And that was in 1948, I believe. You were either 10 or 11 years old at the time. And uh, she went to Wellesley College uh, and then got her PhD from Columbia University. And she held various different positions uh, working uh, uh, in the political arena. But uh, in 1993, she was appointed by President Clinton to be the United States ambassador to the United Nations. Um, And then she held that post until four years later, when she was selected by President Clinton to become the first woman to serve as the United States Secretary of State. Um, And she was a fierce advocate for democracy. She's a fierce advocate for human rights. We'll talk a little bit about that. And President Obama uh, awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, in 2012. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the Medal of Freedom is the highest possible uh, civilian honor uh, that you can get for all that she has done for our country. She is a professor at Georgetown. She holds another, a number of other posts where she's the chair of different organizations. She is also the author of not one or two or three, but six New York Times bestseller books. Um, I'm the author of Zero, just to give a (laughs) contrast uh, on that. Uh, You have one of the books in front of you uh, right now um, that I had a chance to to read parts of, and uh, it's a very important book, and we'll talk a little bit uh, about that. She is the chair of the Albright Stonebridge Group. Uh, We work uh, with that group. Uh, They are helping to advise us uh, on a number of things that we are looking at and some very important Uh, initiatives, and we are very fortunate to have the Secretary's advice and counsel on that. I'm going to give you three of my favorite quotes of Madeleine Albright, okay? And here they are. First one, I love this one. I am not a fatalist. I'm an optimist who worries a lot. (laughs) Love that quote. Okay. Next one is, your reputation is your resume. I like that a lot. And then, of course, there's the famous one that everyone knows. There's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Um, and uh, so uh, let's please yeah. Yeah. <coughs> that. Yeah. welcome Secretary Albright, and thank you so well, much for taking the time And to be I'm with delighted us. to be
1: here, Dan. And I, uh, we love working with you. And I think PayPal is an incredible organization that is dedicated to doing the right thing in so many different ways. So it's our honor to work with you. Thank you very, very
0: much. And I look forward to our conversation. Thank you so much. appreciate it. Um, Okay, so let's uh, start out maybe uh, with a little bit of background. You were born in Prague. Your family was forced into exile during the German occupation, as I mentioned. You sought political asylum here in the US. I'm curious how what happened in your childhood uh, and all you saw your dad go through and your family go through, how that influenced your worldview, your approach to diplomacy, and let's start with that. Okay.
1: Well, um, to kind of fill in the story a little bit, what did happen, uh, my father was with the Czechoslovak government in exile in London, yeah. and so we were in London all through the Blitz. And uh, I, uh, in a movie by the British Red Cross, I played a refugee child. Um, uh, But going through the, I mean, I was used to uh, being in cellars and waiting for the all-clear sound. What happened after the war, my uh, father went back to Czechoslovakia and then he was made ambassador to Yugoslavia. And so the little girl in the national costume that gives flowers at the airport, that's what I did for a living, Mm -hmm. um... And then one of the things that happened after I had, my father didn't want me going to school with communists. So I had a governess and I got ahead of myself. And in Europe, you can't go to the next level. So I had a year that I had to do something and they sent me to school to Switzerland um, and the French Switzerland. And they wouldn't feed me unless I asked for it in French. So I learned French pretty quickly. And then we came to the United States. And so the reason I tell you all that is that I had to adjust to a lot of different situations pretty mm. quickly. Uh, when By the time I came to the United States, and I, I was 11, I spoke um, Czech and, and uh, English, English, and um, French, and I understood Serbian. I just didn't speak American. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I wanted to fit in. And so an awful lot of what I grew up with was shifting various places to live, flexibility, uh, learning to be friends very quickly. Um, and then my parents were so remarkable because they went through all this and they made the abnormal seem normal. Mm. And so what happened, we come to the U.S. and then my father, um, he defected and he asked for a political asylum. And at that stage, the Rockefeller Foundation was finding jobs for Central European intellectuals and whatever. And they found him a job at the University of Denver. We had no idea where Denver was. And my parents started driving across America. And my mother said, they say Denver's the mile high city and we're not going up. So maybe we're going the (laughs) wrong direction. (laughs) But the main thing about me was I wanted to be a part of something and I wanted to be an American. And one of the things that my father used to say on a regular basis that uh, Americans uh, were not appreciative enough of democracy, that they, uh, Americans took it for granted, and that one had to understand what happened. And then he said two things that I'll never forget and are so apt for what is happening now. He said that when we were in England, people were very nice, they couldn't have been nicer, and they said, we're so sorry that your country's been taken over by a terrible dictator. Uh, what can we do to help you? You're welcome here, and when are you going home? Um, When we came to the United States, people said, we're so sorry that um, your country's been taken over by a terrible system. You're welcome here, what can we do to help you, and when will you become a citizen? And my father said, that's what made America different from every country, and so I really grew up with a, a view of America that has, in many ways, Uh, been the guiding aspect of my life. The thing that I did do, because I was always interested in international relations, wherever I went to school, I started an international relations club. I made myself president, made everybody come and listen to me (laughs) all the time. So there are all these Uh, things kind of go on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, you also, obviously, um, this formed your perspective on human rights and so many of these human rights issues today uh, are challenging. Um, How do you think about what's happening, uh, the state of human rights these days?
1: Well, first of all, I operate on the basis of the fact that we're all the same Mm -hmm. Uh, and that you can't say X people are not interested in human rights or X people are not interested in running their own lives. And I've found it always very uh, irritating, to say the least, is when people say, well, for instance, Asian values. Asians don't want democracy and human rights. And I deliberately, when I became Secretary of State, I made my Assistant Secretary for Democracy and Human Rights a Korean-American. And so I really do think it is something, they're called human rights, not American rights or German rights or whatever. And so I think it's humanity, and it is the very basis in terms of our respect for each other. I also think that it's everybody's business. And so one of the things that, uh, and this goes to my background in so many different ways, I think one could say that we didn't know everything that was going on during World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, But now uh, we know everything that's going on everywhere. And the question is whether We have a responsibility to each other, if somebody's human rights are being abrogated or suppressed in any way, that there's a responsibility to do something about it. Now, it becomes a little complicated in terms of where and when, but I think it is something that we need to watch out for for for, uh, ourselves and for... Uh, the others. So I believe it's important and it's very important for the United States to speak out about human rights, especially.
0: Yeah, I think it's probably more important than ever. I mean, I think now we talk about some of the decisions we make as a company, um, and uh, we try to make what we call values based decisions, not political issues, no. decisions, not you know, looking at something from the right or the left, but basically trying to make a values-based decision because I do believe things are human values, as you say, and that we ought to stand up for those. And in this time uh, in our history, um, standing up for those are maybe more important than ever. Um, I mean, when I read your book, I think about that kind of thing. How would you react to that from a business leader perspective or really all of us?
1: Well, I, I do think that we have to understand the importance of how societies function and that we are all the same. And one of the things that I feel excuse me, very strongly about is that the private sector has a huge role in all of this. Mm-hmm. And if I could just spend a little bit of time explaining something, which is... Um, I think it terrifies people to think you actually learn something when you already are Secretary of State. So what happened, frankly, was that I was invited. John Chambers at that time, head of Cisco, asked me to come out here to talk to the techies about what the role of the government was um, in terms of how to deal with the private sector. And they said... um, actually the government can't do anything for us. And I said, excuse me, you actually need the government for market access and for uh, regs and all those kinds of things. And when, and when I had the power to do this, I put more economic counselors in our embassies to be helpful. Then what would happen would be the opposite. I'd go to China fairly frequently and I'd speak to the American chamber, to AmCham. The audiences were huge and I would learn nothing. And so I decided that what I wanted to do was to meet with uh, the representatives of our corporations in China, a roundtable kind of just to see what they saw, what they knew. And the interesting part was that they actually had a different feel about what was going on in China from what our diplomats had And also, I felt that American businesses were good ambassadors in terms of labor policies and health policy, et cetera. And so what I decided to do was to create a prize um, at the State Department for American corporations that were good local citizens. Um, And it also kind of was able to justify what I believe, Benjamin Franklin said this, is doing well by doing good. Um, And I really do think that that is obviously something that PayPal does. I think that I've been so interested in the whole business about financial inclusion and all the way that you see what you do in terms of being good local citizens and bringing people into things. And so uh, I think that the part about, um, to get to what we were talking about is, I believe in the role of the private sector. I learned about public-private partnerships through that particular experience. And I think the private sector has a huge role in trying to deal with human rights or Mm -hmm. with a variety of the issues that take place in countries in terms of discrimination or uh, in any number of ways to help the societies so that we can help each other.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I'm not sure all businesses are stepping up to that role, but I do think um, we should encourage them to do so. Yeah. I, I do
1: think that one of the interesting things that's happened recently uh, is this whole idea about um, stakeholders versus just shareholders. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that comes out. I was actually in Aspen at a conference, Jamie Dimon and um, they were talking about that, and then I think that it's a very interesting aspect in terms of sustainability, in terms of the role the private sector has. And, and I think that the private sector... I have a whole other part to this, which I actually have been talking about a long time, is that uh, the private sector needs to be at the table at international conferences Early, not to come and pick up the pieces once the decision has been made. And there really needs to be public private partnership.
0: Yeah, uh, we've been talking a lot about the role of a corporation um, and our view um, is the way that you should think about your constituencies, which is unlike maybe the Friedman model, which was shareholder yeah. uh, primacy is employees come first you have to have great employees. And if you don't treat them the right way, if they're not passionate, then you can't serve your customers well. And if you serve your customers really well, then they have loyalty right. back to the company. And then eventually that plays Absolutely. out for shareholder yeah. wealth. And I think looking at it the other way around actually um, creates less shareholder value over the long run. Um, so you've had a very interesting career. Uh, You've met uh, a number of very interesting world leaders uh, over time Uh, from, um, I think you were one of the first to meet, uh, the leader of North Korea. Uh, You've met leaders all over. Can you um, talk about uh, some of the important influences, uh, maybe who some of them were what were uh, some lessons that you learned from them? The influences on you? And uh, and maybe some of the um, uh, stories around that that I think would be well, interesting for people to well, hear.
1: Well, I do think the personal relationships are very important. Um, and I can talk about some of them, but just the concept that whether you're in business or in government, having that personal relationship is very important. And understanding uh, what it is the other person, person at the other side of the table, where that person comes from, what is um, his or her motivating factor, mm-hmm. and understanding if it's a, um, a government person, what are the issues in terms of how they have to, what decision-making process are they part of, or a private sector person or an NGO in some way. So it's very important to put yourself into the shoes of the other person, <clears throat> which means that you need to know something about them. Um, And I did have had a chance to meet some really incredible people, uh, some who are incredibly good, like Nelson Mandela, and some who are incredibly bad, like Milosevic, Um, and so trying to figure out how you deal when you have to have some kind of discussions with them. And so knowing who you're talking to, uh, I think, is important. Um, I was talking about Milosevic, and I had to go see him in the middle of all the killing in, in Bosnia. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so what is interesting, I, I've determined it is practically impossible for an American to shake hands and not smile at the same time. It's kind of a mm-hmm. But I was determined not to smile. So there are these pictures of me. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so he starts telling me the history of the Serbs. And I said, excuse me, but I know the history of the Serbs. My father was ambassador here. And um, they said, well, your father liked the Serbs. And I said, well, not the kind of thing that the Serbs are doing now. And so the difficulty, we were talking about this, is as a diplomat, you have a job and you don't go there to make nice. You go there to tell it like it is. And so that was very, very difficult, I have to say. One of the most interesting people, well, let me start with somebody. First, the Russians. What happened was the first time I went to Russia uh, was as a private citizen, but with Geraldine Ferraro, who Mm -hmm. um, had been a vice presidential candidate, and I decided I wouldn't tell them that I spoke Russian. So uh, what happened, we were in all the meetings, and all of a sudden, um, and everything was being translated, and all of a sudden, they translated something totally wrong. And so I must have made a face, and they said, we knew you spoke Russian. (laughs) So uh, then what happened was when I became Secretary of State, uh, Yevgeny Primakov was the foreign minister. He had been head of one of their sections of the secret police. I walk in, and he says, given my previous job, you do know that I know everything about you. So that was the beginning of that. but we got to know each other very well, and we had some very, very tough discussions, and then we'd go out to dinner together and drink vodka, and, uh, and so, and got to be very good friends. Uh, and then somebody that I really liked, and it was very interesting. As a Czechoslovak, we didn't like the Germans, uh, and for the reasons yeah. of the history. The so yeah. what happened was, <clears throat> I am secretary and Joska Fischer, was the German foreign minister. And he walks in, and he's in a three-piece suit. And he said, I can't believe that I'm sitting in the office of the Secretary of State in a three-piece suit being for NATO. And he had been a revolutionary in 1968. And we we got to know each other very well. And he said that he really had to be a revolutionary because he knew that everybody that he knew as an authority figure had somehow been complicit with the Germans. Um, and um, kind of getting to know him in a number of different ways. He's one of my best friends now. And mm-hmm. as a Czech to really like a German was not easy. And I do think those personal relationships are very, very important.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, did you always have um, the ability to be as Tough as you became in terms of those uh, negotiations, because you're dealing with, you know, political strongmen who are dictators in many ways and and worse. Um, and um, you're also a, a diplomat. But um, I, I can imagine just how difficult it must be to figure out what that right balance uh, is. I'm curious, like, that. Was that a natural? Did it come to you? Did you learn it over time?
1: I, I, it, I developed it. I think, I think the hard part, frankly, <clears throat> um, I had no role model. Yeah. Um, as you pointed, I was the first woman secretary of state. And yeah. um, trying to figure out how, how to behave as, as such. Uh, and, and I do have to say... Um, when my name came up, uh, there, what, the, just to tell you kind of the situation, it was clear that Secretary Christopher wasn't going to stay for a second term. Yep. So all of a sudden we had the period of the great mentioning, you know, who was, <laughs> <laughs> who was there. Yeah. So my name was out there. And then all of a sudden somebody said, yeah, a woman can't be Secretary of State because Arab leaders will not deal with a woman. So the Arab ambassadors at the UN got together, and they put out a statement. They said, we've had no problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. We wouldn't have any problem dealing with Secretary Albright. So that went away. So then somebody at the White House, and I never want to know who, said, yeah, Madeline's on the list, but she's second tier. So it never occurred to me that I would be Secretary of State, Mm. frankly. Uh, By the way, my youngest granddaughter, when she was Seven, eight years ago, said, So, what's the big deal about Grandma Maddie being Secretary of State? Only girls are Secretary of State uh, because <clears throat> there had been Condi yeah, and Hillary. Yeah, and Hillary. Yeah. and yeah. now there have been a couple of boys that have been practicing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, uh,
0: but. How are they doing this? Yeah. Those? yeah.
1: Uh, so, uh, one of the things that was interesting was trying to figure out how, in fact, to do the things you're supposed to. And um, there's no question, by the way, normally people prepare for meetings when they're having them with high level of other people. And there's a lot of work that goes into preparation and talking points and what do you say and do. And mostly you have a mixed message to give. You talk about the things that are working with a particular country, but you don't do the meeting unless you're really talking about some of the tough issues. So one of the things, one of my first trips actually was to the Middle East. I was meeting with the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, foreign ministers. They couldn't have been nicer. Um, I had arrived in a large plane that said the United States of America on it. Um, and I said to them, perhaps you've noticed that I'm dressed differently than my predecessors, (laughs) and you've been very kind, and next time we'll talk about women's rights, and we did. Um, Or um, what would happen is there never was a meeting where I didn't do issues where I raised human rights, for instance, um, in China and uh, wherever, Russia, um, and I think that you have to do it, and it's your job. The question is how you do it. How do you get into the subject? And that's the hard part. By the way, I think people don't realize, you go and you begin with happy talk. Men would say, I've watched men do this, say you have a nice tie. They don't do that with you. Um, And uh, then.
0: They don't do it with (laughs) me.
1: Nice shirt. Yeah, Uh,
0: They rarely do
1: that either. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Uh, But I but basically how you even get out of the kind of good day things. And and I had a trick. I would say I have come a long way, so I must be frank. And I really do think it's your job and you have to do it. Now the other part, just to tell you you don't mostly have meetings just one on one. There, are the staffers yes. with you. They prepared the talking points. They think, why didn't she say that? You know. So uh, it is important. But you you have a job, and you have to do both. And I think it's possible to begin in a way, say what you have to say, and end up in a way where you say we'll talk about it more next time.
0: Yeah. You still have, um, despite. Uh three women secretary of uh, states, you still have women underrepresented uh, at all parts of, whether it be government or business, Uh, still to this day. What advice and counsel would you give to um, not just uh, women who are thinking about how do they... uh, have more of a voice. How do they move up into positions of responsibility? But to uh, to me, to others who can help make that happen. Like, I'm. I'm what advice and counsel would you give to us to make uh, this world a more uh, inclusive and diverse uh, place?
1: Well, there are several parts to that, and so I think first of all. Um, it is important for people to know that um, more than half the population in pretty much every country is female. Yeah, And it's a waste of a resource, not in fact to uh, use women. Um, and we can talk more about that and, and why it's important, not just if one is a feminist or not, but it's just a, a waste in so many different ways. But I think it's a two-part story. And some of it Um, are the women. So let me, you said about the special place in hell. It's the most famous thing I ever said. And it ended up on Starbucks cups. And and I'll tell you, it came out of my own experience. So despite the fact uh, that um, I had, I went to a women's college um, and uh, we were, the advantage of a (laughs) women's college is all the leadership roles are women and you're not trying to uh, impress some boy who's dumber than you are. And so um, basically, but what happened was I come out, and by the way, our graduation speaker at Wellesley was the Secretary of Defense at the time because his daughter was in our class. And we all kind of remember the speech slightly differently, but it was mostly your main responsibilities to get married and have children. Mm. And the fact that we (coughs) stayed there uh, is amazing. But I took the advice. I got married three days later. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, partially of what had happened was that um, I wanted to be a journalist. And um, uh, we were like, trained to do it. And uh, my husband's editor, when we were in Chicago, said, so honey, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to work for a newspaper. And he said, I don't think so. You can't work for the same paper as your husband because of labor regulations, and even though there were three other papers in Chicago at the time, he said, and you wouldn't want to compete with your husband, so go find something else to do. So the bottom line is I was pregnant, and I was at home with my kids, and I I went to graduate school. The people that were hardest on me were other women Hmm. who said, why aren't you with your children or in the carpool line, Um, and besides, my hollandaise sauce is better than yours. And I found (laughs) that being put down by other women and that we're very, very judgmental about each other. And then what happened was that I did ultimately go and work uh, on Capitol Hill and and then in the White House. And I found the hardest thing was being the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, And it made me and I, I, I don't know how many women now identify this with this. But um, what happens is you think, all right, I'm going to say something, and then you think it's going to sound stupid, um, and so you don't say it, and then some man says it, and you're really mad at yourself for not saying anything. So I decided, I had a, a, my motto was interrupt, and that if you're going to interrupt in a meeting, first of all, you have to actively listen, know what you're going to say, and, um, and do it, but it's not easy. And I think that um, we need, there needs to be more than one woman in the room. And and I think that's what we need to work for. Um, and I think we need to not be jealous of each other or have the queen bee syndrome. Say if there's only one woman, um, I'm going to be it and not you. And so I do think that that support system among women and then men recognizing that um, it's a, uh, important to use the resource of smart women. Um, Now, there are people who ask me whether I think the world would be better if it were run only by women. If you think that, you've forgotten high school. So I think that it's important to have a co-ed operation and that it's much stronger as a result of that because I do think men and women think slightly differently. Mm -hmm. I think women have more peripheral vision because I think we're multitask more often. I think men have a capability of kind of zeroing in on one thing, and I do think that that combination, uh, and and I think women are actually pretty good negotiators because we are better at putting ourselves into the other guy's shoes.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. I think that resonates with, with all of us and a lot of what we've been talking about. Thank you for that. Okay, so... Um, we have your book uh, on the table here, Fascism A Warning. Um, and um, it's a great historical review of international relations, diplomacy. Um, I'd like to um, for everyone to hear your thoughts about um, today's geopolitical uh, order of the world, how it's changed from I like post-World War II, sort of, you know, uh, you know, Pax Americana, and then now to where we are right now and how you think that landscape uh, is going to evolve because certainly you have a lot of things for us to think about in that book and a lot of uh, concerning thoughts in that book. Uh, uh, can you take us a little bit on that journey?
1: Um, Well, let me just say, I do think that pretty much everything is different. Um, We came out of World War II, the victors, um, and in a way, understanding what our responsibilities were um, in a lot of different ways, creating the United Nations. Um, I was just uh, in San Francisco looking at, I came here to celebrate one of the anniversaries of creating the United Nations. It was an incredible act. And it was done by the United States. Um, and it was the idea of operating some kind of a system where there was respect for each other and uh, some kind of rules of the game. Um, we also, after <coughs> the kind of <coughs> Soviet uh, aggression, salami tactics in the rest of Central and Eastern Europe, and it was um, actually once the communist coup had happened in Czechoslovakia in February 48 that there was a decision to push back, and NATO was created. Mm-hmm. And I won't go through all the organizations, but they were created in order to deal with the problems that were had come out of World War II and were created by the Cold War. Things are very different, um, and I believe that people and organizations at age 70 need little refurbishing. So um, there are various aspects about the system that stopped working in one way or another. Uh, But it has been exacerbated, I think, by the fact that the situation is quite different. There are, I sometimes talk about two megatrends and their downside. The first megatrend is globalization from which most of us have benefited incredibly. I won't, everybody knows what that is. But there's a downside to it because globalization is faceless. People uh, don't know who they are really so much. They're part of something <clears throat> where it, um, they're the faceless bureaucrats. Um, and people want to know their identity. I think <clears throat> it's really legitimate to know who you are, language, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The problem is if my identity hates your identity, uh, and then it becomes nationalism and hypernationalism is very, very dangerous. Uh, and we see that a lot, and we're seeing that in Europe in a number of different ways. And, um, and so it really is creating uh, barriers in, in so many ways. The second um, uh, megatrend is technology, which clearly has benefited so many people. I have talked about this a lot. Uh, we just talked about this, about the woman farmer in Kenya yeah. <clears throat> who no longer has to walk tons of miles to pay her bills. She can use PayPal, uh, and to really changes her life in a number of different ways. The downside of it is that, in fact, what happens is that it disaggregates people's voices, and they get their information uh, through some echo chamber. And the best example (coughs) of that is at Tahrir Square, what happened in the in Arab Spring. People are summoned to Tahrir Square by social media. They get there, they have no idea what to do. I very rarely say this, but elections were held too soon. The Muslim Brotherhood was organized and the people in Tahrir Square were not, and uh, it continues to, and the Muslim Brotherhood wins. Uh, So then what happens, I made up this kind of middle-aged guy that lives outside of Cairo that wants to come in to open his um, stall in the souk, and Cairo's a mess, and he says, to hell with this, I want order, and they have a military government. So part of also what has happened is a disconnect about people want and what they see. Uh, This is a plagiarized line from someplace in Silicon Valley, which was somebody said people listen to people talk to their governments on 21st century technology. The governments listen to them on 20th century technology and provide 19th century responses. Mm. So there's a complete disconnect in terms of how we're relating to each other. So. The world is a mess. That is a diplomatic term of art. Um, and um, the, the divisions that are going on, and I decided I wanted to look at what the problems were as I was looking at what I called the rise of, uh, I mean, my book has this bland cover, uh, Fascism, A Warning, yeah. to kind of see what I, where did it all come from And some of it had to do with the displacement of people by technology and the lack of identity. So I decided to go back and look at the history of it. And I got, I I, I do think that it's very important to understand the history of any evolution. So Mussolini, the first fascist, what happened was Italy was disappointed by the fact that they weren't properly recognized for the role they played on the Allied side in World War I. They also had economic displacement. Mussolini was a smart outsider that knew how to mobilize people. Uh, he said he was a stable genius. Um, and, he, and the best quote in the book is from Mussolini, that if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of feather plucking going on now. And by the way, you can't say those two words together too quickly. Uh, So, uh, uh, But I decided to kind of look at what was going on. uh, And what was interesting was Mussolini came to power constitutionally. King Emmanuel um, asked him to take over. Hitler. Uh, Germany felt that they were punished too much for World War I. Uh, There was all kinds of financial uh, terrible problems. Hitler comes along, and he got power constitutionally. Von Hindenburg asked him to take overs. So then what has been interesting in looking at some of the countries now, Mm -hmm. they all got elected. Orban was elected. Erdogan was elected. Um, The people in Poland, um, the Peace and Justice Party elected. Duterte in the Philippines elected. Chavez in Venezuela elected. And so the question I keep asking is how did this happen? Now fascism is a term that's kind of thrown around without people really knowing what it means. I mean you basically call somebody you disagree with a fascist or a teenage boy who's not allowed to drive calls his father a fascist. So fascism is not an ideology. It is a process for taking over. And what it does is take the, uh, the majority of people, in some ways, that are unhappy in a, because they, their identity is not being respected or various problems, and decide to blame another group for the problems, yeah. uh, the scapegoat, the immigrants. Uh, and so I think that we can see it in Brexit. It's a perfect example there. So there's that, and if the leader is somebody that has in fact, there are these differences in society, and if there's a leader who wants to exacerbate them, then that is a leader with authoritarian fascist tendencies. And that, they, But they've been elected, and I think we need to understand that better, and understand that we can't have leaders that think they're above the law, or think that they, Presses the enemy of the people. Um, And so I I do think it's a warning. Uh, I decided it was worth writing, and I think the history of it's interesting. And then I've decided the following thing, you know, we have this see something, say something. I have added to that do something, Mm -hmm. uh, and not normalize things like that. And I'm advocating that people either support those that are running for office or run for office, And then the part that is really hard is to talk to people with whom you disagree. Um, And it's not to tolerate them, but to respect and try to figure out what they're talking about and why. And then there isn't a book or speech that's ever given that doesn't quote Robert Frost. So my quote from him is basically, the older I get, the younger are my teachers. And I think, for instance, those Parkland kids that we're out demonstrating and various things. So there's a lot going on. But I do think that we need to understand that most of the people that I identify as fascists got elected and that we need to understand what
0: creates them. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot to think about that. Uh, and I think it goes a little bit to your uh, point that you were making before. We all need to, uh, we need to talk about it. We need to take stands. We need to uh, um, call out injustices mm-hmm. that we see or um, potential dangerous consolidation of power, even if it's elected.
1: Yep. Yep. And to go back to the original issue, I am a grateful American. Uh, and um, being an immigrant is something that is a basic part of my life. Um, And one of my favorite things to do, I have to tell you, is to give out naturalization certificates at Mm. ceremonies. The first time I did it was on July 4th, um, 2000, at Monticello. I figured since I had Thomas Jefferson's job, I could do that. And so uh, (laughs) I gave this man his naturalization certificate. And as he walks away, he says, can you believe it? I'm a refugee Uh, And I got my naturalization certificate from the Secretary of State. So I went up to him and I said, can you believe that a refugee is Secretary of State? And I think we need to be a welcoming country and understand what America is really about.
0: Thank you so much. So um, uh, Secretary Albright also, uh, I think it was a title of the book. I think it said something like Read My Pin" or something yeah. like that, right? And um, so she always wears these different brooches and uh, different things. And um, and people tried to interpret them. Um, and you actually made them try to yeah. interpret them yeah. as well. Like she would wear like a snake if she was meeting with somebody who she hated and, you know, and different <laughs> things like that. Um, so I, of course, like you knowing she was coming here and I was trying to like figure out, okay, well, what was her brooch and like all that kind of thing. And first I thought it was like sunshine. And then I, there was something below. So I thought maybe it was like a yin-yang thing, but nope, here's the thing. I love this about you. She is completely Completely, if you look at her, covered with money. She is covered (laughs) with currency. (laughs) It is all coins and things for us. (laughs) Great. Great. Thank
1: Thank you. you A lot of fun. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Really great. Much much fun.
0: So yeah. Great.
1: Great. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Yep. Okay.